Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford, joined as always by Eric Trexler. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Carolyn. Such a special episode for doing? us. I'm doing great. This is our 100th episode, and boy, did we shoot for the moon as far as guests go. And I am thrilled to say and honored to say that we have retired four-star general Stanley McChrystal with us. I thought you were okay. going to say the eagle has landed. I, Sorry, I just got chills just even saying General Stanley McChrystal's name. So, okay, let me get to the point here. General McChrystal is widely praised for launching a revolution in warfare by leading a comprehensive counterterrorism organization that fused intelligence and operations, redefining the way military and government agencies interact. His leadership of Joint Special Operations Task Force, JSOC, is credited with the 2000 capture of Saddam Hussein and the 2006 location and killing of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Since retiring from the military, General McChrystal has served on a number of corporate boards of directors and founded the McChrystal Group, an advisory services firm to help businesses challenge the hierarchical command and control approach to organizational management. He's also the author of several best-selling leadership books, one of which we are going to talk about today, Team of Teams, which begins when General McChrystal took command of JSOC in 2004, and he quickly realized that conventional military tactics were failing. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was a decentralized network that could move quickly, strike ruthlessly, then seemingly vanish into the local population. The Allied forces had a huge advantage in numbers, equipment, and training, but none of that seemed to matter. To defeat Al-Qaeda, they would have to combine the power of the world's mightiest military with the agility of the world's most fearsome terrorist network. They would have to become a team of teams, faster, flatter, and more flexible than ever. Good morning, General. Thank you so much for joining us. Carolyn, thank you for the generous introduction. And you said that saying my name gives you chills. So <laughs> say my name from now on and it's stamped. You know, as I tell people, I've been called worse. So if you and Eric would, <laughs> would honor me by doing that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. I will do my best. How about you, Eric? How's that going to work We will do out our best, you? sir, Stan. <laughs> um, but I, I've got to tell you, te team of teams for me is right up there with one of my favorite management uh, professors, experts of all time, Michael Porter. I hand it out to all of my people and I frequently reference it. It, it it certainly changed my way of thinking in business. And I just want to say publicly, thank you for that. Well, you're kind. I appreciate it. That was a, a great journey to experience. And then to try to capture it in writing was something that, that made us all think, which I really appreciated. Well, and, you know, it was such a good read. I, it was honestly a page turner, which, to be fair, a lot of those books are not. But the way that you wove story into it, I, I mean, I just I couldn't put it down. It and you love book. the summary at the end, right, Carolyn? I did. Like I mean, the bring it back again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah. did. And that's like I said, we found a lot of similarities between the landscape, Stan, that you encountered in Iraq and in today's cyber landscape. So I, can I can I just read a little piece from your book? Is that OK? 
Of course. No author ever is going to say no to that. Okay. So in 2003, when fighting the war against Al-Qaeda, although lavishly resourced and exquisitely trained, we found ourselves losing to an enemy that, by traditional calculus, we should have dominated. We came to realize that more than our foe, we were actually struggling to cope with an environment that was fundamentally different from anything we'd planned or trained for. It demanded a dynamic, constantly adapting approach. And so in the early 2000s, we morphed and morphed again in a bitter struggle to first contain and then reduce the threat posed by Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So here's the million-dollar question. How can we apply the logic in Team of Teams and what you did against Al-Qaeda to cyber warfare? Yeah, I mean, we've been behind our adversary for since 1987, since mm-hmm. this, this form of warfare started. Yeah, it, if you think about, and, and I'll rewind a little bit to the JSOC experience, really in Iraq, but across the region, um, we had been prepared for an industrial age kind of operation. We, we had a good structure, as you said, we were well-resourced, well-trained, very professional. But we were designed to do precise, elegant operations for which we could plan, rehearse, focus, and then then execute. And that means you are on a fairly deliberate or ponderous uh, cadence to do that. And the theory being that each of your operations is so perfectly focused at the enemy that it causes uh, tremendous damage. What we found was... Al-Qaeda in Iraq, different from its namesake, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was really completely different DNA. They had been formed 15 years after Al-Qaeda, 1988 for Al-Qaeda, 2003 for Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And in that intervening years, uh, information technology had proliferated so that every Iraqi had at least one cell phone and access to the Internet. And it was in their personal lives, so they automatically used it as terrorists. Uh, And so as a consequence, they had a different DNA, a different way of operating. And I don't I don't know that it was intentional. I think it was reflected the environment. So as a consequence, they were constantly adapting, constantly morphing, reshaping themselves as a a network. We used to, to capture detainees and we would ask them to draw out the structure or we would show them a structure that we had depicted of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and they would be mystified because they'd go, well, what is that? And we say, well, that's your structure. And they go, well, <laughs> I don't know, you know. And, and that sort of got to the point that the very constantly morphing nature of it was part of its strength. Uh, now, the theory was that would be weak because they wouldn't be able to focus power. But that's not what happened. They actually were able to take that network through intent and focus uh, at what they needed to do. I remember you drawing a terrorist cell on a, on a whiteboard. And I, I remember thinking it looked like a living organism. And, and then you've talked a little bit about the immune system and comparing it to cyber. Could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, absolutely. And you're exactly right. Um, one of the things we found is I was raised on the counterterrorist or counterinsurgency theory that you map out the enemy structure 
and then you try to take it out and cause it to collapse on itself. And because they weren't very fast traditionally, you could do that. If you could figure it out and you could start to attack those cells, it would lose its structural cohesion. When you go into this living organism, what we found is we would try to go after key nodes, but when you took them out, instead of having the effect of causing it to collapse, they just automatically adjusted to that. It was though, it was very disappointing because you didn't have that crippling effect that you thought you would, even when you took fairly significant personalities out of the network. So as a consequence, you found that they were a living organism. And every time we impacted them, they changed, which was a challenge into itself, because just when you're getting a picture of them, you hit them. They're now different. And so your picture is now wrong. Well, and when we look at, you know, the current asymmetric warfare, modern day warfare with cyber included, you, you almost see the same type of morphing, the ability to rapidly go from a burn command and control system to an alternate one in a different country in seconds, or it's already online. So it's almost very similar. It's, it's almost exactly similar. And the, what we found is Al-Qaeda Interact used information technology to enable their operations, which were largely human. Cyber allows to take it a step different because they're not as requiring, they don't require the people and the physical assets and the car bombs and the attacks that Al-Qaeda Interact is. So they're even faster. Yeah. They don't need the face-to-face -face connection. To get to what Carolyn asked about with the human immune system, if you think about a human immune system is this extraordinary entity that detects uh, threats to us, assesses those threats. And this is the magic of it. It can tell something that is or isn't a threat, attacks it, but then learns. And it learns so that the next time that threat appears, it can quickly identify it and can go after it. What we find is nations um organizations commercial firms have the equivalent of an immune system the problem is often that immune system is very very weak or corrupted because of biases or poor communications or just inertia that that slows it down so as a consequence instead of being able to combat these constant attacks like cyber is able to do cyber is able to create this constant array of attacks, each of which is a little different. And it requires this organic learning process to detect, assess, respond, and then learn. But the speed at which it happens demands the immune system of the organization to be extraordinary, like the human immune system. And most organizations haven't yet applied that kind of thinking to create the, the response of adaptability needed. Right. I mean, JSOC was all about understanding, learning, and rapidly evolving and getting the message out and moving quickly. I have yet to see that in cyber. We, we tend to be, we take weeks and months to even understand what's happening, let alone put, a, put together a coherent response. And then I almost feel like we're, we're attacking the adversary, we're defending against the adversary of the past. Right. Like the Maginot line. And I love the example that you give um, the, the Krasnovian government, you talk about those drills and the, you talk about the military and how we run these, these known uh, threat drills. And it just reminded me so much of what we're doing in cyber with like our anti-malware and 
you know, we're running known threat drills all the time. We can really only defend against what we know. So how do we how do we morph? How do we get to where we're adapting like an immune system? That's almost uh, the most key point of all, Carol. I think you, you all have really hit it. The idea is that militaries are designed to perfect defenses against what attacked them before, because that's known. And sometimes you can see enemy forces. You can anticipate what they can do if the enemy has a certain capability of of types of weaponry or that sort of thing. You can do planning against that. The problem is in the environment we're in right now, particularly in cyber, it is impossible to see what capabilities the enemy has because they are constantly changing. And the one reality is anything you prepare for is not going to be the way an enemy, a rational enemy is going to attack. The last opponent of the United States who's going to be like that was Saddam Hussein in 1990, when he put his army out in the desert and he gave us seven months to line up on it with a big driver and he put his army on a golf tee and crushed it. Nobody is going to do that again. And so what they will do is they'll see what we're good at and then they will prepare capabilities against that. The thing about cyber is because it's so organic, you have to do two things. One, you have to try to understand the enemy, but you've also got to put the mirror back on yourself. You've got to try and understand yourself. One of the things we learned in JSOC painfully was we were designed to assume that we were really good and we were. But the reality was we were more than half the problem. When we started, when I took over in the fall of 2003 and I'd grown up in the command. So, I mean, I should have known and I didn't. The reality was we were a person with a hammer looking for a nail. So we just kept trying to find that nail and we were going to slam it. The reality was we needed to look at ourselves and remake how we operated, how we thought, how we interacted, because perfectly knowing the enemy was impossible because the enemy was constantly changing. So what we had to do was make ourselves into something that is capable of very, very rapid adaptation, very, an organization that could rapidly detect, rapidly assess, rapidly respond and learn from it. And we weren't originally created with that uh, requirement in mind. I think that's the requirement in cyber today. It's, it, it is this extraordinary reality that the, the answer, the threat on Monday is going to be different on Tuesday. And the requirement's going to be different. And we're still fighting the old war, whether from the vendor perspective, where we're making products for today's problems or even yesterday's in some cases. And on, on the consumer side, the actual government or, or commercial industry side, they're putting RFPs, RFIs out for products that are old, right? That, that meet the today's requirements if they're advanced, right? Can you do this, which is what we need today? But what I'm hearing you say, Stan, is really you need to think about tomorrow and you don't know the answer. So now you need to you need to think about systems that can evolve and adapt very rapidly. I, I would love to go out into our cyber force and ask a question that I used to ask young sergeants and lieutenants in Afghanistan. And I would go out to these remote bases and I'd say, if I told you you can't go home until we win, what would you do differently? And usually they'd, they'd giggle a little bit because they weren't sure if I had that power. And then they would start to give these very thoughtful answers. I think if you went to 
the people actually executing our cyber operations and seeing the impact of the threats. And you said, okay, if you had to win, your family depended upon it. What would you do differently? And I think one of the first things, Eric, you hit on is our acquisition process is designed for acquiring belt buckles and boots, you know, and, and then we added some requirements for suppliers to be compliant. And, and there's rational reasons for those things, but the timeline it takes for that is crushing. There is no way you could compete commercially at that timeline. And there's no way you can compete against an enemy who has no such constraints uh, at that time. So you'd have to just say, if all you have to do is win, how do we have to do this? What rules do we have to throw out? What what uh, laws do we have to rewrite to make it possible for the organizations? But as you know, organizations and individuals get shaped over time by limitations. If I give you a task and then I say, Caroline, I want you to do this. But you can't do this, and I give you a list of things, and you must do these things. I've just given you a list of excuses for why you don't get the job done. And it's not that you're an evil person. It's just that you've got these constraints, and we get used to them. And typically in warfare, we start to shed some of those, but we haven't been in existential threats enough for us to, to throw some of those out and to think differently enough. Well, and even in cyber, we haven't had a consequential enough event, right? I, I, it pains me when my my peers and people in the industry talk about a, a catastrophic event that finally wakes us up. That's almost what you're alluding to here, in my opinion. It, it, it scares the hell out of me, actually, because that could be the power grid going down for months, which is a catastrophic event. And as you know, that's not at all impossible to do. That, that's very achievable for many of our opponents. They just haven't yet found a good enough reason to want to do that. It's a little bit about, I think some are afraid of awakening the sleeping giant. Um, but, but we're definitely not focused for that. No, we're not. So... In chapter three of your book, you talk a lot, well, you talk about complicated versus complex. And so there's a quote that I love. You cite a couple of examples with cyber. I mean, it's not just cyber attacks as far as like a zero day attack or, or an insider threat. It's also, you know, what's happening with social. And I love that you brought up the hackers when they hit Twitter in 2013 and what happened to stocks. And then David Carroll's love that United breaks guitars listeners go find that song on Spotify. It's very funny. And you can read the example in, in uh, Stan's book, but I, I just want to read your quote here. So you said, um, let me see if I get, get to the quote, the amount of nonlinear change that once took months to play out can now happen in the time that it takes to type 140 characters. Cyber has taken us from complicated to complex. Will you talk about the difference between complicated and complex and how you're seeing that in cyber? Sure. Complicated is the era that we all grew up in. It's the industrial age. It is an age in which uh, complicated organizations and complicated machinery was built to do very specific tasks. 
And it may be hard to understand. Think of an internal combustion engine. Most of us don't know how to build one or fix it. But we know that if we turn the key or press a button, it does the same thing every time because it's designed to do that. If you study it or you bring in an expert, you can deconstruct it. You can figure it out. So a complicated problem allows you to develop complicated solutions to it. Think General Motors and the, the, the big functional uh, organization they created. But they were making cars that while they changed, they didn't change every day. The requirement didn't change every day. Complex is where you increase the speed of action and the number of variables. When you do that, you hit a point where it's impossible to predict the future. And so once you're in a complex environment, trying to build a perfect solution to the problem is a waste of time because the problem's always changing and it's not. You can guess at it, but you can't really predict it with any uh, effectiveness. So what do you do? Do you throw your hands up and say, well, I just wait and see what happens? No, what you've got to do is try to create yourself into an organization that is organically adaptable, almost reflexively adaptable. It doesn't take a an order from the CEO or the president to tell the organization to adapt because it, it is designed to adapt automatically to what is happening. So if you think of uh, the cyber world where you talked about the speed at which 140 characters can be sent, ideas can be propagated. And simply an idea that plants doubt in your mind. If you got, if we all got information in the next 15 minutes that said the banking system is compromised, you better go get your, your cash out of the bank. Now, we might not go, but we would all think about it. If somebody says the stock market is going to crash, if you have stocks, we'd all think about, well, maybe we should sell right away. And once people start doing that, they will. And then you take it a step beyond that and you say, OK, I'm going to do that. And you go to try to sell your stocks or get your money and the connectivity is not there and you can't. Now that seems to fill that black space, that dark space in your head. And, and we would all be, frankly, terrified. And it could only say it only lasted six hours. And then after six hours, people said, ah, oh, joke's over you still would see a reaction inside our society that would be pretty extraordinary. Um, now, do that in a rolling series of events, in a rolling different way, and suddenly people's confidence in systems is gone. When people's confidence in systems is gone, they go into a tribal or survival mode with family and things like that. And and we've seen that in places, war, war-torn countries and whatnot. Suddenly you had the ability to, to literally constipate the way our society works. I mean, we're seeing that right now, right? Even here. A little bit. Yeah. With the election, with, with COVID, with, yeah. with all of these stressors on what I will call what, what used to be the normal, right? right. What, what American citizens or even the global citizens of the world were used to. You definitely question. You question the media. You question yeah. the leadership. You question everything. Yeah. So we know the adversaries got this terrorist approach down, right? I mean, that's the way they're operating. So what's the first step to move from 
command and control, which Eric, you alluded to earlier, that's the way we're, we're functioning on the defense side. How do we, what's the first step from command and control to more of this living organism? I don't think you can centrally command and control against cyber because it's too fluid. So I think what you have to do is you have to have a series of capabilities and they need to be pushed out constantly. It's like the heart in a human body. You've got to push information and capabilities out in a real time basis so that the entire body is as healthy as it can be. You know, it's as informed as it can be. It is empowered to act once it starts to get a threat and that sort of thing, which is different than having information come to the the top and the brain make a decision and then slowly respond. Again, you've got to you've got to empower that much closer to the edge because that's the only thing that will be fast enough uh, to do that. Now, that means that you've got to bring all the information that's coming in. It's essentially got to be brought in, infused and been made available to people. And they've got to understand that that information is critical. So the most important thing is this flow of information. I think that's what can make a, a society or an organization as resilient as possible. And not just based upon it all going one way to the brain, because then the brain is the, the critical node that if it stops, you're dead. But instead, it, it goes laterally. It goes every different direction so that as much as possible, everybody is informed. Think about our power grids. There's a move to go to microgrids and whatnot, which I think is intelligent. Over time, we can be more resilient that way. So I think you first have got to look at yourself and say, what would help us most survive a series of interruptions of information flow, power, you name it, um, and, and be very, and that seems inwardly focused, but it's really not. It's making you yourself, you remember from the book, we talk about the dikes in Holland. They're not a big wall that keeps the sea out. They're, in fact, an organic system that responds to the flow of water because you can't stop water. And so I think what we're describing here is you've got to use our ability to flow information so that it is a strength and not just a vulnerability. Yeah. And you talk about the importance of hands off, okay. which, you know, what you did with JSOC, I don't think anybody would have thought it was possible to to spread that information out the way you did but not only that you you empowered so many people and that's why a huge part of why I think you were able to do what you did can you talk about that like you talk so one of my favorite phrases is brains out of the footlockers <laughs> so that that goes to a story my my dad used to tell me cuz he he had grown up as a military kid and when I was I was a smart ass young kid along with my brothers and I'd say something and my dad would look at me, he says, put your brains in the footlocker. I'll do the thinking around here. <laughs> um, and, and so we're saying you got to get the brains out of the footlocker because that's that's where it is. When I took over JSOC, I approved every operation, every mm -hmm. single one, because the idea was that they are strategically important and they have to be carefully controlled. They are strategically important, but there's no way one person can be the limiting factor and do it well. I certainly didn't bring massive wisdom to the approval process. It was just a process that, that many organizations, frankly, have, and they think it's a control. What we found was it was too slow and it wasn't value added. 
So, but what we had to do is we had to push contextual information down in the organization. That was context that typically goes to your headquarters. And so they used to say that the U.S. Navy is a, an organization designed by geniuses to be run by idiots. And the theory was somebody comes up with a great plan and then you just follow the checklist that you're given and it all fits together. Well, that's fine if nothing changes. But the reality is when things are changing, you have to push this context down and then let people operate within that to do the best they can. And the reason we describe eyes on, hands off is because it doesn't mean you push down and then you tell people to make decisions and you go to the golf course. It means that with today's information technology, you're pushing those decisions down, but you're now able to watch everything. You're able to be informed at every part of the organization. So every part of the organization can theoretically be uh really, really aware of what's happening everywhere else because it matters. It's context. What we found in the fight against uh, Al-Qaeda is they were spread not just in Iraq, but they were spread across many countries. And what happened in one country was very relevant to what was happening elsewhere. And so we had to think broadly, inform ourselves constantly. So what we did operated within that context. But that requires you to let go a little bit. That requires you to to lead in a different way. It requires you to trust your subordinates and not only trust them, demand that they act. And that's a little different. It's one thing to empower them. It's another to create the expectation. You're going to you are going to be proactive. As I thought about your examples of pushing information out, I, I translated that over to cyber and I thought about, well, how do we do that in the cyber world? How do we get the commercial companies to talk to our different agencies, for heaven's sakes, how do we get our different agencies to talk to each other? But I think, do you think that's what has to happen? I, you know, Carolyn, I do. And I'll tell you my background when, you know, I was commanding long enough ago where the cyber capability was there, but nothing like it is now. But I used to get visitors coming and they'd say, well, how's cyber going? And I said, well, we have some very good capabilities. But let me tell you something. I can drop a bomb on an enemy leader, but I'm not authorized to send them an email. Mm. And in many cases, I actually wanted to do that. I wanted to send them an email. I said, I know who you are. Here's what we want from you. And if you don't do it, we're going to drop a bomb on you. Um, and yet, because there was this, because cyber was new, people treated it like it was kryptonite. And so you couldn't trust people lower down the, the chain to make cyber decisions because it's such a powerful tool. Well, the reality is you've got to make decisions way down the chain because it's not only powerful, it's really quickly moving. And yet we just had this aversion to it. And I think partly because it was new and senior leaders just weren't comfortable with it yet. Yeah, we don't understand the we don't understand it well enough. Not at all. And, and we know that it's kryptonite. We know that correctly used, it can have tremendous effects. But that is the reason we've got to get more familiar with it, that we've got to be more comfortable with it. We can't we can't be terrified of it because then we cede all the initiative to our opponents. Yeah. So I I want to ask you about Clancy. 
So when I first started reading him, you know, forever ago, one of the things that drew me to him was his technical detail. And I truly believed that like he knew, he knew you guys. Right. And when you said that there are no Ramiuses, I was like, oh, my world just got rocked. There are no Ramiuses. I thought you, General McChrystal, you are a Ramius. <laughs> so can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by that? And and how does that, of course, apply to cyber? Yeah, that, I mean, I love that part because the, the movie The Hunt for Red October has that amazing scene where Sean Connery is this uh, Russian submariner who just has ice water in his veins. And at the critical moment, he's doing multiple things. He's I think he's got a uh, a torpedo heading right for him. And then he's holding a separate conversation yeah. with Alec Baldwin. And of course, yes. I'm sure somebody can do that, but I have never met him. And the reality was what I found in this counter-terrorist fight is we started it thinking that the way you defeat them is you have these barrel-chested commandos with extraordinary valor and the ability to do things, and you you beat them on that level. And it's not that at all. In fact, the ability to kick open the door and, and capture or kill the enemy became commoditized. Now, it takes good people, but the reality is a lot of different people could do that. The hard part of this is putting the pieces together. It's getting the pieces to work together. Mm. So the hard part of Captain Ramius's job is getting the entire crew of a Soviet submarine to operate together as they must without being told everything they do. Um, the hard part is to understand that it's constantly changing. And so you've got to let people do that part of the job. We all want to be that leader with all the answers. We want to be the person who walks down the hallway and you got three assistants following them and you're giving them staccato instructions, do this, do this. And they, they don't know why you're telling them to do it, but it all comes together in brilliance. That's absolute BS. The reality is the wisdom of the crowd knows what to do, but the wisdom of the crowd, it's the constant interaction that knows what to do. And it's, it's often people doing this and people learning real quickly from that. And another part of it's the network that does it. And so it's creating that is what you look for uh, in leaders, try to develop that. So when the network is the individual, it's the organization, it's the government, it's multiple governments. How do you, how do you, how do you even, I don't even know how to get my hands around pulling that all together. Yeah, cyber is very interesting. I've been thinking about this for a while. And, you know, one is we haven't decided whether cyber is war or spy work or something completely different. And we haven't decided whether if somebody comes and and takes out a single bank, is that an act of war? Does that justify tomahawk strikes? Well, I mean, right. It makes nuclear look easy. That's right. It does. And, and we got we to gotta have that conversation. But then the second part is, to a great degree, we've done this balkanized effort where firms feel like they've got to defend themselves, even parts mm -hmm. of firms, because they're not sure that the overall fabric of defense against cyber is strong enough. And firms are even often uh, incentivized not to tell when they've been attacked by ransomware because it undercuts their brand and whatnot. And so. Well, we sometimes they don't even tell like within the firm that happened with Yahoo. That's right. And so there's this idea we got to keep it 
quiet. The problem is you've got to identify the threats so that people can develop the ability to deal with them. And that that's the threats go wide. So really, the best way to be effective against cyber is to have this networked defense, not a series of individuals. My problem with our response to COVID-19, because it's very much like cyber, it's an opportunistic viral um, threat, and you can't fight it as 50 different states or as X number of, because nobody's got the expertise or resources. It's only through shared uh, knowledge, shared assets and whatnot that you're going to do it. And that's really true across the world. Uh, and we're, we're struggling with that with cyber because we're not quite sure uh, what it is and what it means. Now, that's a great analogy, the COVID-19 analogy. I mean, I, I don't like it because obviously COVID-19 is out of control at this point across the globe. But I would argue so is cyber. And we need to come together and do something about it. It's just getting worse and worse every year. And, and as you say, Eric, it's not only getting worse, but the potential is getting greater and greater and greater. For example, you know, we opined a little bit. If somebody were to attack our ability to communicate like we are doing right now during a pandemic, when we are very dependent upon it, uh, one, it would slow down our ability to do actions and to do work and things like that. But imagine if we were all sitting at home right now, afraid to physically go out, but we were cut off from this flow of communication that we have. And yeah. it would We've be a black hole. That. Suddenly we would be almost in the dark ages. Yeah. So you talk in your book about um, being a gardener. And who do you think might be our gardeners in cyber? Yeah. Um, I, I think it has to start at the federal level. You know, clearly cyber is at, at every level now because we all do it. But there's got to start at the federal level the theory that we are going to have a resilient cyber uh, capacity in the United States. And that means we've got to look at not just hardening certain things that we we value, but taking a look at how all of our systems work, which means you're going to have to have sharing across all the service providers, sharing across all of the uh, uh, big firms and whatnot. And you're going to have to have an interaction that it's it's probably unprecedented in American uh, society because there's often this desire to separate off military defense, law enforcement, intelligence and businesses because we think it's an unholy interaction when they interact too much. I think we got to step back and say, wait a minute, we have got to rethink that because and there have been some actions moving, but I think it has to start at the federal level where you have policies that are known by every American that says America is dependent upon digital communications, digital interaction. Therefore, you could say it's our center of gravity. We are going to defend it, but make it as robust and resilient as is humanly possible. And that While will being be open. Core. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I thought about implementing your idea of the linchpin liaison officer 
I loved that. I wondered how that would, what that would look like in cyber. Well, I'm a great believer in, in liaisons and fusion cells, and that's places where you connect a number of different entities together in a, in a capability that pumps out information. It, it performs that little heart function we talked about earlier. So everybody's aware about what's happening. And, and the liaisons do the same thing. They, they tell you what's happening in another organization. They allow you to help. They allow you to learn. Because again, the more we are stovepiped, then the more we are ignorant about challenges in other places or developments in other places. And we're relearning the same lessons over and over. And it, this goes way too fast to do that. I, I think, Stan, I want to go a little personal. I mean, you've had one heck of a career. You, you, you're an author. I mean, Carolyn went through, through your background. What, what do you do to decompress? Yeah. Um, like, how do you I relax? Am, yeah. I am very, and I, I'm going to tell, say generally it's good. I'm very disciplined. I have set schedules. I work out every morning. I do certain things that I read at night. I do certain things that are necessary to keep me going. I can't, you know, be helter skelter here because it just, it's not my maximum productivity. So if I don't work out every morning, then I'm going to be less effective during the day than I could. I'm also an introvert. And so for me, interacting with people is tiring. And I can I've actually... You know, on the one hand, my wife jokes about it. She says social distancing is something I've been waiting for my whole life. Uh, <laughs> but but a lot of a lot of these kinds of sessions are tiring because you're you're being focused. So I found I've got to sort of meter myself and give myself time to read and think or I just stop being as productive as as I might want to be. You know, it's interesting in COVID, a lot of us have gone to back-to-back -back Zoom or WebEx meetings. And as a leader of a business, I've struggled to think, right? We're, we're always responding. We're checking in on people. We're, we're doing what I call action versus, I'm, I'm sorry, activity versus action. I really have to, as a, as a fellow introvert, I've got to schedule in think time, downtime, or I can't see the future. I can't, I can't run the organization effectively. It's crazy, but I've noticed the exact same thing. And I think there are interactions, human interactions that we're trying to replicate virtually and we're finding there's a limit to it. Mm. You know, you can walk in your business and you can sense how well somebody's doing because you've just done that your whole life. It's harder virtually. And so we, we're going to have to figure out what the right balance is so we can put that human part in what we do, which is a lot of times why we do what we do, because that's what we really value. Now, it's hard to build that, that relationship, that rapport with somebody. I, I was on with a customer today and I was asking them some questions and I had met them once before briefly, but they didn't know me. They didn't trust me. I didn't know them. I, I couldn't read five or six different customer cubes or boxes on the Zoom, on the WebEx session along with my people intermixed in between, right? So now my eyes are going into 20 places. I'm trying to read people, some of which I don't, I've never met before. I really don't know any of them. It's, it's really challenging and taxing on the mind. So now I'll, I'll schedule some downtime and I'll think, okay, how would I do that differently? How would I do that better? What questions would I ask? What format would I use? But I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's a whole new world. 
And it's going to be interesting as we navigate it. And we'll get to some hybrid. But but I think that we are going to have to be very thoughtful and intentional about what we create. Do you relax? <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I got my three granddaughters live next door to me. So six, three and about nine months. And so I see them every day. So, yeah, my life has got an angle to it. That's not relaxation, but it is. I hear yeah, you. absolutely. So thank you so much for spending time with us. I'm going to end this session with a challenge to all of our listeners to read Team of Teams. If you've already read it, read it again with cyber in mind. And let's let's become let's take our brains out of the footlocker. So until next week, be kind to yourself. Do your updates. Talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 